Chapter 10 of True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Ernest. True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World by Adolphus W. Greeley. Sontag's Fatal Sledge Journey. Death cut him down before his prime at manhood's open portal. Pomeroy. The remarkable series of physical observations of Kane's expedition, the most valuable scientific contribution of any single Arctic party in that generation, was almost entirely due to the scientific training and personal devotion of his astronomer, August Sontag. While the nature of his duties lay in the observatory, his adventurous spirit sought field service whenever practicable. As shown in Kane's rescue of his freezing shipmates, Sontag's prudence kept him from freezing in that terrible winter sledging, while his energy in the long journey for aid contributed to the final rescue of the disabled party. When Dr. I. I. Hayes outfitted his expedition of 1860 in the United States, the glamour of the Arctic seas was still on Sontag, who for service therewith resigned his fine position as associate director of the Dudley Observatory at Albany. Of his expeditionary force, Hayes wrote that he lacked men. My only well-instructed associate was Mr. Sontag. Sailing as astronomer and as second in command, Sontag met his fate with the expedition on the ice foot of the West Greenland coast. His dangerous journey was made for reasons vital to the success of the expedition. The incidents of the sledge trip are briefly supplemented by such references to his previous field experiences as show the physical fitness and heroic quality of the man. The schooner United States was in winter quarters at Port Folk near Littleton Island. Without steam power, the ship had not only been unable to pass to the northward of Cape Sabine, but her unavoidable conflicts with the polar pack had sadly damaged her. Conscious that his ship was so near a wreck as to be unable to renew her voyage toward the north the next summer, Hayes found himself obliged to undertake his polar explorations with dogs over a long line of ice floes. Tests of dogs became the order of the day, and Hayes' delight was great when, driving his own team, twelve strong, selected animals with no load, twelve miles in sixty-one minutes, he beat Sontag by four minutes. Although knowing the danger of such a journey, Sontag arranged to climb Brother John's Glacier, named by Kane for his brother, to determine its seaward march. The approach was through a deep canyon. This gorge is interrupted in places by immense boulders which have fallen from the overhanging cliffs, or by equally large masses of ice which have broken from the glacier. Sometimes the ice, moving bodily forward, had pushed the rocks up the hillside in a confused wave. After traveling two miles along the gorge, Sontag made the ascent, alpine fashion, with which he was familiar, by steps cut with a hatchet in solid ice. The deep, irregular crevasses common to most glaciers were bridged by crust formations of the recent autumnal snows. These bridges were so uniform with the general surface of the glacier as to make their detection almost impossible. Although Sontag moved with great caution and continually tested the snow with his ice chisel, which replaced the alpine alpenstock, he broke through one bridge. Most fortunately, the fall was at a place where the fissure was only about three feet wide, opening either way into a broad crevasse. 
Still, more fortunately, he did not fall entirely into the chasm, but as he pitched forward he instinctively extended his left hand, in which he was carrying a mercurial barometer three feet long, which caught on two points of the glacier and thus barely saved his life. Footnote. Comparative measurements showed that the center of Brother John Glacier moved 100 feet annually. Rink states that the center of the Great Jacobsavin Glacier moves 20 meters a day, or about four and a half miles annually. But Sontag's ardent wish was for a bear hunt, which occurred during an unsuccessful attempt to revisit Rensselaer Harbor by dog sledge when a bear and cub were killed. Hayes says, Sontag has given me a lively description of the chase. As soon as the dogs discovered the trail, they dashed off utterly regardless of the safety of the people on the sledges. Jensen's sledge nearly capsized, and Sontag rolled off in the snow, but he was fortunate enough to catch the upstander and with its aid to regain his seat. The delay in the hummocks gave the bears a start and made it probable that they would reach the open sea. Maddened by the detention and the prospect of the prey escaping them, the bloodthirsty pack swept across the snowy plain like a whirlwind. The dogs manifested the impatience of hounds in view of a fox with ten times their savageness. To Sontag they seemed like so many wolves closing upon a wounded buffalo. The old bear was kept back by the young one, which she was unwilling to abandon. The poor beast was in agony and her cries were piteous. The little one jogged on, frightened and anxious, retarding the progress of the mother who would not abandon it. Fear and maternal affection alternately governed her. One moment she would rush forward toward the open water, intent only upon her own safety. Then she would wheel around and push on the struggling cub with her snout, and again coaxingly encourage it to greater speed. Within fifty yards of the struggling animals, the hunters, leaning forward, slipped the knot which bound the traces together in one fastening, and the dogs, freed from the sledges, bounded fiercely for their prey. The old bear heard the rush of her enemies and squared herself to meet the assault. The little one ran frightened around her and then crouched for shelter between her legs. The old and experienced leader, Usi Soak, led the attack. Queen Arkadik was close behind him, and twenty other wolfish beasts followed. Only one dog faced her, and he, young, with more courage than discretion, rushed at her throat and in a moment was crushed by her huge paw. Usi Soak came in upon her flank, Arkadik tore at her haunch, and other dogs followed this prudent example. She turned upon Usi Soak and drove him from his hold, but in this act the cub was uncovered. Quick as lightning, Karsik flew at its neck, and a slender young mongrel followed after. The little bear prepared to do battle. Karsik missed his grip, and the mongrel tangled among the legs of the cub was soon doubled up with a blow in the side and escaped yowling. Usius Soak was hard-pressed, but his powerful rival came to his relief with his followers upon the opposite flank, which concentrated onslaught turned the bear in the direction of the cub in time to save it, for it was now being pulled down by Karsuk and his pack. Disregarding her own tormentors, she threw herself upon the assailants of the cub, and to avoid her blows they quickly abandoned their hold, which enabled her to once more draw under her the plucky little creature, weakened with loss of blood and exhausted with the fight. The dogs, beaten off from the cub, now concentrated on the mother, and the battle became more fierce than ever. The snow was covered with blood. A crimson stream poured from the old bear's mouth, and another trickled over the white hair of her shoulder from shots fired by Hans and Jensen. 
The little one was torn and bleeding. One dog was crushed almost lifeless, and another marked with many a red stain the spot where he was soothing his agony with piteous cries. Sontag now came up, but their united volley, while weakening her, was not sufficient to prevent her from again scattering the dogs and sheltering her offspring, which then sank, expiring. Seeing it fall, she for a moment forgot the dogs, and licking its face tried to coax it to rise. Now, apparently conscious that the cub no longer needed her protection, she turned upon her tormentors with redoubled fury, and flung another dog to join the luckless mongrel. For the first time she seemed to know that she was beset with other enemies than dogs, when, his rifle missing fire, Hans advanced with an Eskimo spear to a hand-to-hand -hand encounter. Seeing him approach, the infuriated monster cleared away the dogs with a vigorous dash and charged him. He threw his weapon at the animal and turned in flight. The bear bounded after him, and in an instant more neither speed nor dogs could have saved him. Fortunately, Sontag and Jensen had by this time reloaded their rifles, and with well-directed shots rolled her over on the blood-stained snow. In early December a great misfortune befell the expedition through an epidemic disease attacking the dogs. The serious nature of this disaster, says Hayes, will be apparent when it is remembered that my plans of operations for the spring were mainly based upon dogs as a means of transportation across the ice. Unless I shall be able to supply the loss, all of my plans would be abortive. The first dog attacked, Karsik of the bear fight, was the best draft animal of the team. Of the effect of the malady, he adds, I have never seen such expression of ferocity and mad strength exhibited by any living creature as he manifested two hours after the first symptoms were observed. I had him caught and placed in a large box, but this aggravated rather than soothed the violence of the symptoms. He tore the boards with indescribable fierceness, ripping off splinter after splinter, when I ordered him to be shot. About the middle of December there remained only nine dogs out of the original pack of thirty-six. It occurred both to Hayes and to Sontag that the best method of replacing their lost animals was to open communication with the Eskimos of Whale Sound. If they could induce several native families, through offers of stores and food, to come north to Folk Harbor, they would bring along their dog teams, which would thus be available for the sledge journeys of the coming spring. There were supposed to be several Inuit families living on the south side of Whale Sound, which was a distant midwinter sledge journey of at least 150 miles. Hayes says that we should communicate with these people at the earliest practicable moment was a matter of the first importance. When the moon came, it was arranged that Sontag should make the journey, taking a single sledge and Hans as a driver. Sontag and Hans started with a team of nine dogs on the day of the Arctic midnight, December 21st, when the sun had reached its greatest southern declension. Hayes writes on the 22nd, Sontag set out yesterday to reach the Eskimos. We had talked the matter over from day to day and saw clearly it was the only thing to do. It was evident that if we waited for daylight, they would be beyond our reach. Five weeks later came the news of Sontag's death, which is told by Hans in his Memoirs. Footnote. Memoirs of Hans Hendrik was written by Hans in Eskimo 28 years after Sontag's death. This little-known volume, translated by Dr. Henry Rink, gives, among other interesting matter about the expeditions of Kane, Hayes, Hall, and Nares, the account of Sontag's death, which is substantially the same as that recorded in Hayes' Open Polar Sea.
In winter, just before Christmas, the astronomer Sontag and I undertook a journey by sledge to look for natives. We crossed the Great Glacier at Cape Alexander and traveled the whole day without meeting any people. A strong wind sprang up from the north and caused a thick drifting of snow while we made our snow hut and went to sleep. On wakening the next day, it still blew a gale and the snow drifting dreadfully, for which reason we resolved to return. While we proceeded homeward, the ice began to break up, so we were forced to go ashore and continue our drive over the beach ice, ice foot. We arrived at a small firth and crossed it, but on trying to proceed by land on the other side, it proved impassable, and we were obliged to return to the ice again. On descending here, my companion fell through the ice, which was nothing but a thick sheet of snow and water. I stooped, from the high ice foot evidently, but was unable to seize him, it being very low tide. As a last resort, I remembered a strap hanging on the sledge poles. This I threw to him, and when he had tied it around his body, I pulled, but found it very difficult. At length I succeeded in drawing him up, but he was at the point of freezing to death, and now in the storm and drifting snow he took off his clothes and slipped into the sleeping bag, whereupon I placed him on the sledge and repaired to our last resting place. Our road being very rough, I cried from despair for want of help, but I reached the snow hut and brought him inside. I was, however, unable to kindle a fire and myself overpowered with cold. My companion grew still worse, although placed in the bearskin bag, but with nothing else than his shirt. By and by his breathing grew scarcer, and I, too, began to feel extremely cold on account of now standing still after having perspired with exertion. During the whole night my friend still breathed, but he drew his breath at long intervals, and toward morning only very rarely. When finally I was at the point of freezing to death, I shut up the entrance with snow, and as the breaking up of the ice had rendered any road to the ship impracticable, and the gale continued violently, I set out for the south in search of men, although I had a wide sea to cross. After finding two deserted huts, he threw himself down in despair, awaiting his death. He continues, When here I lay prostrate, I uttered sighing, They say someone on high watches over me too. Have mercy on me, and save me if possible, though I am a great sinner. My dear wife and child are in such a pitiful state. May I first be able to bring them to the land of the baptized. Footnote. Hans Hendrik was of West Greenland, where all the natives are baptized. His wife, Murtuk, was one of the so-called heathen natives of the Cape York region. See The Wifely Heroism of Murtuk, the Daughter of Shanghu. I also pronounced the following prayer. Jesu, lead me by the hand. While I am here below, forsake me not. If thou dost not abide with me, I shall fall, but near to thee I am safe. Thereafter I arose and set off again. I discovered the light of a window. These folks, Etta Inuits, were very kind and hospitable. When I entered the house and began to take off my clothes, the fox skin of my jacket was as soft and moist as if newly flayed. My outer bearskin trousers were not so very wet. When I took off my hairskin gaiters, they stuck to my stockings from being frozen together, and I could not get them off but by cutting open the boots. Had I used sealskin gaiters, I think that I should have frozen to death. Here I stayed many days, being unable to return alone. Sontag's body was recovered in the early spring, the hut in which he died being found to be completely covered with drifted snow, and he was buried on the desolate shores of Port Folk. 
In an unpublished journal, his shipmate Dodge writes, Not yet in the prime of life, but already enjoying a well-earned reputation which gray-haired men might envy, with prospects of honor and usefulness before him, he was endowed with abilities to achieve success in the highest walks of science. Peace to his remains and all honor to his memory. For among the gallant and the gifted men who have fallen victims to their zeal for scientific research in the Arctic regions, there has been none braver or worthier than August Sontag. Thus perished one of nature's gentlemen, wedded to the universe through his devotion to astronomy, and yet alive to the winning aspects of terrestrial grandeurs. Unsparing of self where the lives or comfort of his comrades were in question, in unobtrusive ways he contributed to their happiness, and shared cheerfully the common burden of daily duties. Such manly qualities, simple though they seem, made heroic the life and death of August Sontag. End of chapter 10. Recording by Mark Ernest.